This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 25th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. It's been 60 years since the Supreme Court decided NAACP v. Alabama, a landmark First Amendment case that fleshed out the freedom of association and helped establish the importance of associational privacy. It's relevant today because of broad efforts to compel disclosure of so many of your ideological associations. Brad Smith of the Institute for Free Speech comments. The issue was uh, that was before the court was fairly simple, which was, could the state of Alabama insist on getting a list of donors and, and members of the NAACP uh, as part of a judicial proceeding? And it's worth looking a little bit at how that came about. Uh, in the fall of 1956, uh, politicians in Alabama had a big problem, and that problem was the NAACP. The NAACP had litigated, of course, Brown versus Board of Education, the famous integration school integration case. Uh, Alabama's leading politicians were almost uniformly dedicated publicly to resisting that uh, decision and attempting to foil its implementation. Additionally, the NAACP was bringing lawsuits pertaining to voting rights, uh, accommodations in public places, and so on for desegregation. The NAACP and, and its activists had also been behind uh, the efforts to integrate the University of Alabama. Uh, Rosa Parks was an NAACP volunteer and activist when she refused to you know, famously give up her seat on the uh, bus in Montgomery, and that eventually triggered the Montgomery uh, bus boycott, which was costing the city enormously. Uh, in, in terms of uh, its, its economy, in part because uh, blacks lived out in segregated neighborhoods and they rode the buses uh, downtown to shop. And uh, so they weren't shopping as well as not riding the buses as a practical matter. And so for all these reasons, uh, the, the establishment really wanted to shut down the NAACP. And they found what's kind of a legal technicality in which they claimed that the NAACP was not complying with their Foreign Corporations Act and tried to shut the organization down. The NAACP contested this in court. And this was when then the attorney general of Alabama, a man named John Patterson, uh, demanded that uh, the NAACP should turn over to the state its membership list, uh, that they needed this somehow to prosecute the case. Now, of course, why was this so important that the NAACP refused to give this up at this point? Uh, and the uh, they were facing a contempt of court order for refusing to do that with a fine of, of six figures in, in the mid-1950s, a lot of money. They refused to do that because, of course, it was the mid-50s in the Deep South. And had the NAACP revealed its donors and, and members, many of them would have been threatened with you know, boycotts to their business, shunning of their families. Uh, they might have had problems with their, their children being bullied or beaten up at school. Uh, they might have faced vandalism or violence themselves. In the worst cases, even potential uh, physical you know, violence and, and death, lynching or, or something like that. And it's quite clear that had the NAACP complied with that court order, uh, that their membership and their donations would quite likely have uh, dried up. As they argued uh, very specifically in the Supreme Court, they said the real aim of Alabama is to uh, silence the NAACP and end uh, organized opposition to the policies of segregation. So that's what was really at stake here. And why is it relevant to today? Well, we see in the case the importance of sometimes having privacy 
in association. Uh, that sometimes there are people, you know, there had to be front people, and there were. Uh, there were people like the attorney Robert Carter, who, who litigated many of these cases along with Thurgood Marshall, and there were people like Rosa Parks who were, you know, bold. But a lot of these donors lacked that courage or, or simply didn't need to have that courage uh, if, we could, if we could put it in the front of the organization. It's one reason people join an organization. And absent that, they, they, uh, they would have been foiled in their ability to do that. So part of an important part of association, their freedom to associate, is to associate anonymously without the government compelling you to tell people who you're meeting with, right? What kind of government is it that would say, we want to know who you've met with? And we want to know what organizations you belong to. And it's relevant today because we're in an era in which there are more and more efforts to expand disclosure. After NAACP, the Supreme Court eventually in Buckley v. Vallejo allowed limited disclosure where people were directly engaged in partisan or electoral politics. That is, if you gave money to a candidate or to a party or to a PAC, or you specifically advocated the election or defeat of a candidate, you would have to disclose your donors. But otherwise, no. If you were a think tank, you didn't have to disclose your donors. If you were a nonprofit advocacy corp uh, corporation or entity like, say, the Rifle Association or Planned Parenthood or the NAACP itself, you didn't have to disclose your donors simply because you uh, tried to influence public opinion on issues, things other than candidate races. And more and more today, we see an effort uh, in almost every state to expand this definition of political activity to include the kinds of things the NAACP did then and that millions of Americans still do, which is try to lobby their fellow citizens, try to persuade people of what issues are important and how they should be decided. And very often the goal of these disclosure statutes is to drive people out of the public debate, people who have views that are disfavored by the sponsors of these acts. Uh, they want to drive them out of the public debate and uh, get them to be silent and opposition. So uh, where do we see in either court cases or in uh, legislation right now, uh, an attempt to silence, as you say, uh, groups that are, you know, 501c3 nonprofits. They talk about politics, but they don't make uh, advocacy with respect to electoral outcomes. Uh, right. First, as a technical matter, uh, more commonly, these would be organized under Section 501c4 of the tax code. And I don't think it's terribly important for our discussion today to go through the differences between C3s and C4s, but we won't want anybody right, but, but to, to pick this apart on that grounds. Treating, the, <laughs> treating those as, as right. rolling those together and saying that, that, that these groups that do not uh, advocate in races... Right. are nonetheless groups that right. are deserving of having this protection of the anonymity of their supporters stripped away. Right. So where we see that is uh, what has happened is that in uh, cases, some of these nonprofit groups will give money to another organization, often a super PAC, as they're called. That is a, a, a organization that directly engages in political activity. And as a result of this, people say, well, I want to know who gave to that group. In other words, the super PAC has to disclose its donors. So it will say, we got money from uh, nonprofit group X. But that that's all it will say. It will not say who it was that actually gave money to nonprofit group X. 
Okay. So a lot of people say, well, we really need to know who gave money to nonprofit group X. It's not enough to know that the nonprofit group gave money to the super PAC. And by the way, often these groups that give money to the super PAC are, are very well known. They might be a group like the Chamber of Commerce uh, or you know Planned Parenthood, which I mentioned earlier, or the NAACP Action Fund, which is their political arm separate from the NAACP. But these groups are all pretty well known. It's not like voters are puzzled by what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce generally stands for. But we don't necessarily know the name of everybody who gave to those groups. And some politicians are insistent that we need to know that. Uh, and the problem is that essentially these groups do not exist for political purposes. People give to them for all kinds of other reasons. And we demand to know the disclosures on the grounds that they might do a small bit of political activity. And if they do much political activity, they have to register as a political committee. They're subject to all the disclosure rules. But these groups don't want to be subject to that. They don't do a lot of this. It's just kind of an incidental thing. But if they have to disclose their donors when they do that, then we've run afoul of, of NAACP. And some states have gone even further, which is even if the groups don't do any political activity, they want them to, as we've traditionally defined it, meaning candidates, parties, they still want the groups to disclose all their donors if they even mention the name of a candidate or an office holder. So if you run ads saying, you know, there's a very important bill that's up in our state legislature that would, you know, it could be anything, legalize marijuana, criminalize marijuana, right? It could be, you know, increase funding for roads. It could be cut funding for roads. It doesn't matter. And you say, you know, call uh, Senator Jones and and tell him, you know, that he should support or oppose this bill. Uh, they want that to be all the people who, who are funding that ad to be disclosed. Or if a group even produces, uh, for example, information, so they produce like a voter guide, a nonpartisan voter guide that says, here are this person's qualifications, here's how they voted on certain issues, here, here are his opponent's qualifications, here's how he's voted on certain issues. They say, we need to know the funders of that guide, who produced that guide. And this has the effect of discouraging many people from participating in politics. It's true that in our modern society, very few people face the kind of threats that were realistic for NAACP supporters in Alabama in the late fall of 1956 and the winter of 1957. The case was decided in early 19, about this time in 1958. Uh, very few people face those threats now. But people do face real threats that, that are serious. We have uh, examples where disclosure uh, is compelled of people losing their jobs for giving as little as $100 to a cause that others disfavored, uh, people being subjected to vandalism, uh, things where at least it's plausible to believe that there's been official retaliation against individuals. It's, it's very hard to prove that because rarely does the politician say, you know, I'm, I'm doing this in order to attack that person who's been critical of me. But, you know, you can kind of sometimes put two and two together in these cases. And so that's the real problem here. There's often an effort to drive these voices out of the public debate. And Occasionally, people slip. Uh, for example, Chuck Schumer several years ago introduced a bill in Congress that had the acronym the DISCLOSE Act. We're going to disclose things because everybody wants things disclosed. And he said uh, very openly when he introduced it, he said that the deterrent effect of disclosure about people's you know, stating their views or supporting organizations should not be underestimated. He thought it would be a good thing if people were discouraged from participating in politics or I shouldn't really say politics, but public affairs and discussion of public life uh, by having their names disclosed. Yeah, that, that general sort of attitude uh, presumes that you as a, a member of society, a potential voter, uh, it 
it presumes that there are very few acceptable ways for you to participate meaningfully in an electoral process. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. There, there's, you know, there's a view that's been expressed and is expressed by uh, perhaps most uh, forcefully by Justice Scalia and the left, which has mainly been promoting these laws, loves to quote Justice Scalia because he's a member of the right who favored these disclosure laws. And Justice Scalia said, uh, he said, look, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, people need to show some civic courage. And I don't want to live in a society where we don't know who's saying these things. But it's, it's you know, to, to come from Justice Scalia, and I don't mean this as a slight on Justice Scalia. I don't mean this to suggest he was hypocritical or anything. I mean this to say that sometimes a person like him can forget about what it's like for other people. That is to say, Justice Scalia had no fear of being fired from his job or being forced to leave his job. He uh, had lifetime tenure. He didn't have to worry about physical violence against him. He had circuit service protection. And he was a guy who relished the public fight. He loved the give and take of ideas. And, and if it got harsh, that was okay with him. A lot of people lack all three of those characteristics. And almost certainly most people lack the first two of those characteristics. Also, we have to consider the fact that the uh, harm often runs beyond the individual speaker. And I give you an example. Uh, Linda Bean is the uh, granddaughter of L.L. Bean of the famous outfitting company up in Maine. She made some personal contributions to political organizations using her own money and so on. But she's a member of the board of the company that bears her family name. She's the granddaughter of the founder. And so an, an organized boycott was launched against L.L. Bean, right? Well, a person in her position might say, I need to be, you know, quiet with my political giving or my support for various causes, my uh, uh, support for people in public life, because it can affect the employees at LLB and it can affect this company that I'm on the board, even though I have nothing, you know, the company or these poor employees who might lose their jobs of business decline had nothing to do with what I wanted to say. In other words, speakers, people who support various uh, issues or, or groups engaged in public affairs, often uh, it's not even whether they have the courage to stand up publicly. It's whether they have to worry about other people for whom uh, they have some responsibility, uh, duty, or at least interest. All right. So uh, with respect to uh, the privacy of groups, I mean, your group has been uh, hauled into court to give up its donor list. Uh, yes, we have, or it might, uh, <laughs> yes, we've been, uh, the, the Attorney General of California has asked as a blanket matter to get the donor list of everybody in the state um, that solicits any contributions there, and uh, as has the Attorney General of New York. Now, any national charitable organization or nonprofit organization that can't solicit uh, people in New York and California uh, is at a real disadvantage. I mean, that's where an awful lot of America's wealth is and America's wealthy people reside. And note that what the the AGs are doing here is just collecting information in bulk. And when they're asked why they need it, they say, well, we just might need it at some point in time. One of the things that's worth noting about this is that nobody is saying the state can't get this information if they have, for example, legitimate law enforcement reason for doing so. If they have reason to believe that an organization is violating the laws and that this information would be helpful, it's very easy for them to show that in a court proceeding through discovery or by getting a warrant uh, from a judge. Rather, what we have here is just states, uh, officials just wanting to collect all this information. 
And in a best case scenario, one has to ask why. In an intermediate scenario, this case or this information is quote uh, or is accidentally placed out into the public. For example, California vowed to keep all this information from nonprofits secret, but in fact, uh, the information from thousands of nonprofits was placed on the internet where anybody could get it, find out who the uh, donors were to different organizations, and. Uh, in a worst-case scenario, it will be intentionally leaked uh, out to people with the knowledge that they might engage in, in harm or uh, trying to uh, run other folks out of uh, public life. So, so it's very important to, to remember, you know, we're talking about a, a couple things are important to remember. One is that we're not, again, talking about contributions to candidates and parties. That is disclosed in contributions to PACs and super PACs. Those are disclosed, and there's not really uh, much argument uh, about that. Rather, what we're talking about is are we going to expand those laws to cover giving to any group that might be engaged in public discussion of issues? Uh, that's, the I think, the, the key thing uh, to remember here when we talk about uh, these laws. It's not a question of some people believe in disclosure and others don't. It's a question of what should be disclosed. And in NAACP versus Alabama, the court was very protective. The government had to have a strong reason to get information from individuals uh, about the groups that they belong to and financially supported. Is uh, the fact that people sort of gloss over the distinctions between uh, campaign contributions and uh, donations to a 501c4 that may, in fact, be engaged in issue ads and 501c3s that, that at least in Washington, D.C., where most of my experience is, regularly hosts office holders and speaks favorably about uh, policies that certain politicians uh, propose is, is sort of are people taking advantage of the fact that most people don't really know the distinctions among these various groups? They are absolutely doing that. Uh, it's a it's a constant issue uh, when you point out that you know you don't think that you should have to disclose all your conversations and who you meet with and who you support financially to the government. People immediately say, "Well, I have a right to know who's giving to this or that politician." You might have a right to know that, and there are certainly stronger arguments for that than for somebody giving generally to an organization that, that is just involved in discussion of public affairs. But they are very different things, and historically, we have limited through uh, NAACP, but also through a number of other cases, including Buckley v. Vallejo and including many other cases, the ability of the government to demand information on your financial support for or your membership in various groups that are not engaged in direct candidate advocacy. Uh, and we've protected that for the kinds of reasons that you see in NAACP, the kinds of threats people can face, but also lesser threats. Uh, it's important to note that NAACP versus Alabama was not a one-off. It wasn't this, this wasn't a one-time thing. The court through the 40s, 50s, and early 60s had a whole long series of decisions protecting people's right to privacy in their associations. So for example, you couldn't uh, demand to know if a teacher was what a teacher, uh, what groups a teacher was a member of, including the Communist Party. Um, now, if it interfered with the teacher's performance, if the teacher refused to teach the approved curriculum or something, and was instead giving out, you know, communist propaganda or something, you might be able to fire the person because they weren't doing the job they were asked to do. But you couldn't just, as a general condition of hiring, say, "We want to know what groups you're a member of," and if you were a member of certain groups they didn't like, then then not 
hire you. Uh, it protected unions and union organizers and union members. You didn't have to tell your employer if you were a member of a union, if the union had not yet uh, uh, you know, organized in the plant or anything. You didn't have to tell them that you'd join the union. Uh, it protected picketers. So if you went out to uh, picket in front of a business whose policies you didn't like, uh, you didn't have to reveal the names of the people who had paid for your signs and, and uh, you know, loudspeakers and things like that that you might be using to call attention to your cause. Uh, so NAACP should be viewed not as a, a case that's limited to its extreme facts where people sub are subject to potential very potentially very harsh violence, but it should be viewed as a case that stands for a broader proposition that generally, you know, unless the government has a good reason, they can't force you to turn over to them information that may lead to you being harassed, bullied, you know, physically harmed, boycotted, having your property damaged, whatever it might be. Anthony Kennedy uh, has, it's often been said of him, the tie goes to freedom. And on issues of political speech, and uh, on issues of privacy, I think that's been true. What, with respect to political speech and sort of the free exchange of ideas uh, and people not being compelled to support speech, uh, what do you think is the legacy of uh, Justice Kennedy? Justice Kennedy has been you know, very strong on, on speech issues, on political speech, on public speech, uh, on being against compelled speech, as he showed uh, this week in both the Janus case and in uh, the uh, NIFLA case where the state of California wanted uh, various clinics to provide certain information uh, to their patients that was contrary to what the clinics believed was right. Uh, so Kennedy has been a big supporter of free speech. It's unfortunate that there's a a single uh, paragraph in the uh, decision he wrote in Citizens United, which is one of the most you know vilified things he's ever written, although I think the decision was, was clearly correct. But there's one paragraph in there that many of the people who vilify it love, in which he just talks generally about how disclosure is very important and uh, voters and so on should be able to know who's financing campaigns. And from this, lower courts have been... Uh, uh, approving almost any disclosure statute that comes before them. If something's labeled disclosure, they approve it, ignoring the fact that Kennedy was writing in the context of these categories of traditional speech, that is people who give money to candidates, parties, and PACs, or who spend money specifically to advocate for the election or defeat of a candidate. And I think that's been very unfortunate. I, I've long wondered whether Justice Kennedy really intended for that result. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court has been uh, unwilling to take a case to examine that issue. The closest it probably came was a case called um, uh, Delaware Strong Families versus Den, which I should point out was litigated by uh, my organization, the Institute for Free Speech. Uh, in that case, the plaintiffs uh, produced just nonpartisan information for voters, uh, and the state demanded the names and employment information and so on of anybody who gave a very, very small amount at any point in the past four years, uh, even though the group didn't advocate for or against any candidates. And in that case, uh, there were two dissents on the request for certiorari uh, in the case, uh, one from uh, Thomas and one from Justice Alito, who who did a written dissent, which is quite rare in a cert case, uh, a cert petition. I don't know what Justice Kennedy thought about that. It might be that he didn't want to take cert because he didn't think there were five votes to to uh, reverse the lower court, or it might be that he did think the lower courts got it right. 
So what will happen in the future, at least on this issue of the future uh, validity of NAACP versus Alabama, will depend on who's appointed there. And if it's somebody whose views on the issue are like those of Justice Scalia, uh, then we're probably going to have this continual expansion of disclosure where everything you do that's remotely might influence an election is going to be deemed fair game. Who did you talk to? Who did you give money to? On the other hand, if, if someone is appointed whose views on the issue are more like those of Justice Thomas or Justice Alito, then I think we'll see NAACP versus Alabama reinvigorate it, and there'll be, uh, again, uh, more freedom for people to participate in public life, to join different groups without worrying that this is going to subject, subject their children to bullying in school or their cars to being vandalized or themselves just to being, you know, uh, treated nastily or shouted at in a restaurant or whatever else might occur. Brad Smith is the founder and chairman of the Institute for Free Speech. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 